My first experience of a culture of trust, says Vishal Mangalwadi, the East Indian political philosopher, was in Holland. My host took me to, the, to a dairy to buy milk. I'd never heard of machines milking cows. No one was selling the milk. My friend just opened the tap, filled his jug, then grabbed a bowl filled with cash, paid a 20 guilder note, took the change, and started walking away with his milk. I was stunned. Now, why was he stunned? Well, because globally, according to Vishal, corruption is the norm. In fact, economic corruption costs the world about a trillion dollars each year. Now, what does corruption do? How does it work? Well, what it does is it transfers wealth from the powerless to the powerful. And what is the effect of that? Distrust. After all, a corrupt society cannot trust itself. And as I said, the disease of corruption is actually the global norm. In fact, Mangalwadi says, I was surprised that some cultures had found a cure. Now, after walking away from that dairy with his friend, uh, Vishal said, Man, if you were an Indian, you would take the milk and the money. His friend laughed, and in a flash, Vishal said, he understood a basic cause of his nation's poverty. He said, if customers took the milk and the money, the dairy owner would have to hire a salesperson. But if the consumer is corrupt, if the customer is corrupt, well, then why would the supplier be honest? He would add water to increase the quantity of milk. And then what would be the effect of that? Consumer frustration. Frustrated by watered-down milk, the consumer would ask the government to appoint milk inspectors. But then why should the inspector be honest? He would take bribes. He would allow adulterated watered-down milk to be sold if he was bribed. And so the consumer would have to bear the cost, not only of the milk, but also of the water, the salesperson, the inspector, and the bribe, none of which would add any value to the milk. And yet it would be the customer's own fault. In paying for all of those valueless extras, the customer would simply be paying for his own dishonesty, for his own sin. What's more, paying for all of that would mean that he wouldn't have money left over to buy products that do add value, such as milk turned into ice cream, for example, or cheese. And so the natural results of corruption are distrust, and not only distrust, but poverty a decrease in value across the board. Okay, so we've been going through this sermon series this summer uh, on the Ten Commandments. 
and we've called this series Set Free to Live Free because that's exactly what the Ten Commandments are about. They are Torah or instruction from the God who set us free to show us how to live and to continue to be free. And you know what? In his very first sermon uh, in this series, Pastor Rusty, he said something uh, that just struck me in the moment and that I thought was really actually quite beautiful. He said that for each of these commandments, each of these 10 commandments, keeping that commandment carries its own reward. So it isn't just that God has, you know, laid on us these arbitrary uh, do's and don'ts, this list, uh, which he will reward us for keeping uh, or punish us for breaking. And the reward and the punishment really have no intrinsic connection uh, to the keeping of those commandments, to the instructions themselves. Uh, It isn't like that. Rather, Each of these commandments, each of these 10 commandments carries within itself a natural outcome. Each of these 10 commandments, keeping them, carries within it a natural outcome, kind of like a fruit, right, that grows up from a seed so that if you keep it, a certain kind of reward will just naturally follow. And so when we come to the eighth commandment, which is where we're we're going today, you shall not steal, you want to ask yourself, what is the natural outcome of following this Torah, this instruction, this commandment? And I think you can answer that question with really just a single word. And that word is value. Value in goods value in relationships. That is the outcome of refusing to steal. And so for uh, all of you kids who are watching, kids of all ages, value is our word of the day. And if you count the number of times that I say that word from this point forward, uh, and then have your parents email or phone that number into the office, we'll reward you with a certain value of Bible bucks to be used in our church store. Okay? Value. Now remember what Vishal Bengalwadi said, how he outlined the devaluing effect of stealing, how the supplier of the milk would have to hire a salesperson to supervise the transactions, right? And how he might then start watering the milk down, which would lead to what? would lead to the need for a milk inspector uh, who would probably take bribes. uh, And so as the cost of the milk rises, its value falls. And not only that, but the value of the supplier-customer relationship falls. So they would no longer live in, in a culture of trust. Their culture would be increasingly distrustful. Value. Keeping the command preserves it, and breaking the command just ruins it. Now, somebody might say, when they hear that, that uh, keeping the command, you shall not steal, preserves value, and breaking that command uh, devalues relationships and, uh, and value. Uh, someone might say, I'm not so sure. I mean, I could name people right off the top of my head uh, that I know for a fact are not keeping this commandment in the way that they do business, in the way that they do their taxes. Uh, And you know what? 
it seems like their lives are full of value. Like they've got the house, they've got the cars, they've got the vacations, the toys. Seems to me that breaking the command has actually elevated their value. What would you say to that? I'd say, you know what? That's nothing new to the Bible. This is one of the things that I absolutely love about the Bible, how realistic it is. On the one hand, the Bible tells us you shall not steal. It tells us treasures gained by wickedness do not profit. But then on the other hand, it never glosses over the examples of of those people who seem to be doing just that, you know, gaining treasures through wickedness, stealing, and yet profiting at the same time. The Bible's so realistic, it always tells the truth. For example, the Gospel of Luke tells us about a man named Zacchaeus. Luke chapter 19, if you've got a Bible handy, then please turn there with me. I'm gonna be taking us through a passage here, a story, uh, a piece of history from the life of Jesus. Listen to this, Luke chapter 19, verse one and two. Jesus entered Jericho, made his way through the town. There was a man named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region and he had become very rich. So here we have this man, Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector, what was called a telonis in Greek. And not just a telonis, but an architelonis, a chief tax collector. Now here's how that worked in Jesus' day. In the world of Jesus' day, Rome was the ruling authority. And the means by which Rome spread its authority was through the mighty Roman army. It was a fabled force in the first century. So the means by which Rome spread its authority was through its army. But the way that it paid for its army was its taxes. Collected from all of the conquered provinces throughout the empire of Rome. Now, how did Rome collect its taxes? Did it collect its taxes by sending Roman officials to each of these places? That isn't what it did. What Rome did was it sold the right to collect taxes to the highest bidder in each of its districts. And so the people who won these bids, they were called Architelona, chief tax collectors, executive tax collectors. And what they would do is they would hire other tax collectors to bring in the taxes. And then once they had made enough, you know, to to cover their bid and to pay those tax collectors, whatever was left over would be theirs. It was a system that rewarded stealing, that rewarded over taxation. And so these executive tax collectors, they had reasons to really fleece their own people, which is what they did. Uh, And in the process, they helped their people's conquerors. Uh, They profited from it in in the process. And so when it says that 
uh, Zacchaeus was very rich, the implication here is that this was one of those people, one of those people who did profit by wickedness, who took the milk and the money uh, in the terms uh, that we heard from Vishal Mangawadi, whose breaking of the commandment just increased his value at the expense of his community. Okay, but let's see what else Luke tells us. Luke 19, verse 3. It says, Zacchaeus tried to get a look at Jesus. That's interesting. But he was too short to see the, over the crowd. And so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road. For Jesus was going to pass that way. So the dirty tax collector wanted to see Jesus. And yet he had this problem. Something so silly, actually, so trivial. And yet despite all of his financial value, it was something that very well could ruin things for him, ruin his hopes of seeing Jesus. And what was that, that trivial something? Well, it was his height. He was too short to see over the crowd. And it doesn't seem like anyone was all that excited about making a place for him, which isn't surprising. And so whatever financial value Zacchaeus may have stolen, it seems he wasn't able to steal the corresponding relationship value. And so what could he do? Here he was, the rich and powerful Architolonis, the chief tax collector. And yet when this vagabond, homeless teacher came passing through town, he couldn't even get a spot to take a good look. Now this is where things get interesting. Because rather than, you know, just going back to his work where he'd be assured of, of respect, Zacchaeus did something else. Look at the passage. It says that Zacchaeus did two things, actually. It says Zacchaeus ran and Zacchaeus climbed. Now, in the culture of that time and place, an important man did not do these two things. An important man, a man of dignity, did not run, did not certainly <laughs> climb. No, he conducted himself with the dignity that befitted a man of value. But on this particular day, this chief tax collector, well, he did both of those things. Zacchaeus ran and Zacchaeus climbed. Imagine the spectacle he would have made of himself doing that. And then after Zacchaeus ran and Zacchaeus climbed up into that tree, Zacchaeus waited Verse 5, when Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Now, all Zacchaeus wanted was the chance to see Jesus. He didn't deserve it. He hadn't earned it but he wanted it bad enough that he ran and he climbed and to heck with his dignity, right? And then to be up there, to be up in that tree and to, ha and to have the man, to have Jesus stop there beneath him, to look up 
and to call him by name. I imagine that moment. I imagine the crowd there with Jesus looking up, drawing attention to Zacchaeus. And what's he going to say, right? What is he going to say as he draws attention to the chief tax collector up in this undignified position, up in the tree? What do you suppose the crowd was hoping he would say? Zacchaeus, come down quickly. I must stay in your house today. What must have that been like for Zacchaeus? For Jesus to call him by name, to initiate with him. I wonder how long had it been since anyone really initiated with Zacchaeus, this dirty tax collector. Had it been like six months, a year, maybe more? How long since somebody had called him by name, had looked him in the eye without disdain in their voice? And now here he was, this Jesus, looking up at him, not ridiculing him, drawing attention to him, not to disdain him, to insult him, this chief tax collector. But, man, it must have seemed almost too good to be true. To give him the honor, and this would be an incredible honor in this time, to give him the honor of hosting him at his own house. It must have felt like a doorway was just opening into this new unexpected world for Zacchaeus. And then as we read on, we find that Zacchaeus stepped through. Look at verse 6. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Which is no surprise. I guess they grumbled, right? Can you blame them? I mean, put yourself in their place. Jesus has come to your town. He's the epitome of goodness, the holy man, you know, the one person in the world. They've been watching him. They've, been, they've heard the stories uh, who cannot be swayed by goodness, right? By status. He can't be swayed by riches, rather, by status. He's the one who stands up to people like Zacchaeus, to the wealthy, to the powerful. He's basically, you know, a first century Robin Hood, And whose house is he going to stay at? Mr. Filthy Riches himself. The dirty tax collectors. It's no wonder they grumbled. What they didn't realize was that something special was happening. What they didn't realize was that something unforeseeable, something that would bestow upon their town a gift that they had never expected. You know what that was? An honest tax collector. An honest tax collector. Look at verse 8. Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord. And insofar as I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Imagine how different life 
must have been in this town in Jericho after this moment, right? They had a different chief tax collector. It must have been something a little bit more like what Vishal Mengelwadi described in Holland, a culture of trust. Because that's what happens when people open themselves to God in a community together. God changes them. He liberates them so that they can become men and women of integrity. People who can be trusted and suddenly, you know, there's no longer any, any more need for a milk inspector or somebody to guard the merchandise. It's called a culture of trust. What a profound thing. It makes you wonder, you know, what if that was our culture today? What if we lived in a culture of trust? What would life look like? Like, what if in the middle of the night you could, you could drive to a Toys R Us, walk into the store, flip on the lights all by yourself, the doors are unlocked, pick out a toy, and then just leave the money in a tray underneath? Can you imagine if, if everywhere was like that? If the entire city was like that? And that brings me to a question, kind of a, a personal application question. That question is this, it's, is that how you live now? In all of those places where you are given trust, you know, where there isn't too much in the way of checks and balances, where nobody is watching, are you worthy of that kind of trust? Like in your job, with the way that you spend your time that your employer is paying you for, uh, in the way that you do your taxes, the things that you decide to file, to claim, uh, in your internet downloads, how you justify downloading what you download. Uh, in, in all of those moments when really nobody is watching, no one human at least, and it's completely up to you whether you pay full price for the milk that you take. How do you conduct yourself? How do you live? And what kind of culture what kind of culture would result if everyone, if everyone were to live exactly like you? Think about that. In all of those invisible moments when nobody is watching and you have the decision to make, what if everybody in our culture lived exactly the way that you do? What kind of culture would result? Would it be the one that I talked about? where anybody could walk into the, the Toys R Us at nighttime, flip on the lights, pick out a toy, leave the money in the tray underneath? Would it be that kind of culture? Or would we need inspectors? You shall not steal. You shall not steal. God's word instructs us. And you know what? This is nothing new, right? This is nothing new. This doesn't come to us as some sort of revolutionary ideal any more than it would have come to first century tax collectors as something revolutionary who spent their whole lives stealing 
even though they knew that commandment. Because the commandment doesn't change us. The law doesn't change us. Not even the law of God. All the law can do is tell us how we should be. So then what can change us? You know what I think can change us? The experience of a gift. I think that changes us. The experience of a gift, like, like God's gift of love. His gift is what changes us. Zacchaeus would have known the law. He would have known the commandment against stealing. He would have known it his entire life, but that didn't change him. That didn't change who he became. What changed him was love. It was that moment up in the sycamore when Jesus, God the Son, stopped beneath him, looked up, drew attention to him, and gave Zacchaeus himself. I must come and stay at your house today. God the Father said that. I must send my son to live in your world. I must send my son to become a human like you. And then Jesus comes along to Zacchaeus. And you know what? He comes along to you, to me. And he says, I must come and stay in your house today. I must come and live in your heart today. And in that moment for Zacchaeus, on some deep internal level, the chief tax collector said, well, if I've got him, then I don't need anything else. And Zacchaeus was reborn. See it happen right there in black and white on the page. I will give half of my wealth to the poor, Lord. So interesting to hear someone of his status, call someone of Jesus' status, Lord. I will give half of my wealth to the poor, Lord. And insofar as I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. When the gift of God comes to us and we realize, we look at our lives suddenly and we realize how we've been living, how we've been stealing, you know what it results in? It results in restitution. It results in giving all of that back because we realize that if we have Jesus, if we have God, if we have him, then we don't need any of that other stuff and we can give it all back and we can give not only all of it back that we took, but we can give more than we took for ourselves. And all of that Zacchaeus didn't do in order to earn Jesus' initiative, in order to earn the honor of having Jesus come to his house. All of that was a response to the gift that Jesus gave of himself to Zacchaeus. And it's exactly the same for us. When we really experience the gift of Jesus, of God, the Son, in our lives, for ourselves, well, the only proper response is to give back 
all of that other stuff that only just gets in the way of receiving the gift of God in our lives. And you know what Jesus said? What Jesus said to Zacchaeus when he said, I'll give them back four times as much. Here's what Jesus said, verse nine. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. He's one of us. He's one of the people of God, he said. For the son of man, that was Jesus' title for himself. For the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. The son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. Man, I love that line. I love that line, to seek and to save the lost. That's why Jesus came, to seek and to save you. To seek and to save me. The son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Gosh, I feel lost sometimes. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Will you let yourself be found by him? Will you let yourself be saved by him? To go back to the beginning, the experience of Holland that uh, Vishal Mengelwadi encountered, his question How did this country, Holland, create the culture of trust that he encountered on that day? As he tells it, as Vishal tells it, he says it began in the soul, and he's a a historian, so he tells us in historical terms, he says it began in the soul of a German monk named Martin Luther, who opposed the corruption of his own church, at the risk of his own life. He tells us that Luther was a Protestant, but he knew that protests, and that's where the word Protestant comes from, he knew that protests don't get rid of corruption. A renovated character is what gets rid of corruption. Not protests, but character. And so to transform a nation, to transform a culture, You have to cultivate character, which is why God gave us the scriptures, Vishal says. As the Apostle Paul wrote, all scripture is given by God's inspiration, is breathed out by God, and is profitable for correction and for instruction, Torah, instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so scripture, it renovates our character. Martin Luther saw this. He experienced it firsthand. And in his desire to reform his nation, Luther was inspired to do something. You know what he did? He did something that no one had done for centuries. Luther translated the Bible into the language of the common people, into German, so that he could promote a national education system that was built on God's word. That's how much he believed in the power of God's word to renovate our character, to form a culture of trust that would be founded on God's grace. 
Vishal says that uh, poverty isn't what causes corruption. Rather, corruption is what causes poverty. To combat both of those things, our nations need more than aid or protests. They need transformed minds and transformed hearts. In his own life, Luther, the religious monk, in his own religious journey, he struggled to find purity of heart. He followed all the religious rituals of his church. He fasted, he prayed, he went on religious pilgrimages. He confessed every sin he could think of. But none of these things gave Luther what he was looking for. None of them gave him an assurance that his sins were actually forgiven. Doing all of this confession, doing these pilgrimages, confessing all of his sins, his fasting, his praying, none of them gave him, none of those things gave him the the peace that he was looking for, the assurance he was forgiven, that he was accepted by God. Now the light dawned on Luther when he read the New Testament. And as he read the New Testament, he realized that that none of his good deeds could earn him salvation because salvation isn't something you can earn. Salvation is something you can receive because salvation is a gift. And when the resurrected Christ came to live in his heart, Luther's inner darkness turned into light. Let's bow our heads. Father God, we thank you for your word, the way that it is living and active and able to instruct us and to correct us and to equip us for every good work. We thank you for your law, Father God, for the command not to steal. And Father, we thank you for the gift of your love, of your son, which is what transforms us from the inside and makes us suddenly able, suddenly desirous to keep that command in response to your love. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, your son, that you gave to us so that we would know you, so that we could live in absolutely free fellowship with you. We thank you for all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to close today by uh, reading uh, what we read together each uh, Sunday when we worship together. Uh, Something that reminds us of who we are uh, as the church, that the church isn't just a place that we go to, but the church is something that we're called to, something we're called to be, and that uh, we are the culture that God calls us to, to spread throughout uh, the rest of the world. And so uh, as we go through this together, you can read the all caps uh, along with me. So we are the church. Wherever you go, Christ goes. If someone asks, what is your church like? Tell them, I am what my church is like. If someone asks, what does your church do? Tell them, I am doing what my church does. We are the church, and we may be the only contact someone has with Jesus this week. So though they may not yet belong to the church, 
we can bring the church to them. Amen. God bless you this week.